Okay, today I'm talking with Alexi Guzzi. He leads a research nonprofit called New Science and blogs at guzzi.com. Alexi, welcome. Thanks for having me. First question, how accessible should a good scientific research paper be? I'm not sure I have like a, a take on this, like, or rather that I'm not sure if accessibility per se should be like the goal or lack of accessibility should be the goal. I guess like scientific papers are very inaccessible usually, but it's kind of expected in any kind of specialized endeavor. I don't think it's particular to science. It's probably the same in, well, I mean, I guess continental philosophy is famous for being inaccessible, right, for example. Uh, but I think it's, yeah, I guess papers, I mean, ideally, of course, we, we do want papers to be accessible, but there are trade-offs. Like, there is a reason why jargon exists, and it's because you compress information. And so, like, there is this trade-off between, like, be, being, like, dense in information and accessible in a way to other scientists. And I think there are definitely benefits to using jargons. For example, like, you can just, like, fit more meaning in fewer, like, in fewer words, right? And I think probably does help to, like, process information and, and and in a way, right, I guess the other thing is like there's so much science popularization. I know I watch a lot of science YouTube videos and uh, like uh, or say or scientific journals like Quanta and stuff. And so papers not being accessible, I'm not sure there is there there is like it should be treated as a problem or something per se, like aside from when it's yeah, I was going to say, aside from when it's like deliberately abstruse, but I'm not sure if there is even a way to determine if it's like, if it's deliberately, deliberate, <laughs> deliberately abstruse or not, or if it's just culture or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I find your writing often like incredibly accessible and sometimes you take really complex topics. So that's that's where the question came from. Yeah, well, because my right, the because I write for public and, and scientists write for scientists. If I were writing for scientists, I, I would be writing very differently. Yeah, I find it interesting though. Like some scientists, like I had Steve Shu on the show, and he he blogs a lot, but he also writes a lot of scientific papers, and his papers come through to me as super super easy to read relative to other people in like genomics and. Uh, machine learning, like I get really lost in a lot of those, but I, it seems like there's a connection there because he's, he's, he blogs so much that it almost like translates over into his papers. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. I wonder if it's something like actually like, why does Steve Shu blog? Like he blogs because he wants to spread his ideas and he wants to be known to the public. And, and so it's kind of like, not that my guess would be that not the blogging like translates back into papers but this something about steve where he like he wants to do particular things leads him to prioritize papers or blog posts being very accessible more accessible than for other scientists who who, who are fine with papers only being understandable to experts in the field right yeah 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 that's a really good point how do you cultivate uh, such good intellectual taste? Your links and, and best of Twitter are like some of the best out there. I, I'm not sure I cultivate it. Uh, so so the, the framing of the question, I, I guess it's, I mean, I, I'm tempted to say that I read a lot or something, right? And I consume a lot of content and I, and this helps. I mean, this does help, but 
is it like the key to uh, what you would consider good taste? I'm really not sure. I feel like, honestly, it's just something that maybe always been present. <laughs> and I'm not sure I have much control either way. It's just like the thing I do, right, is just share things that I find interesting or read things that I find interesting. And why do I find these things interesting? I guess if I try to unravel this, like it's going to be something about learning. And it's difficult for me to focus on things that are boring and things that are boring to me are usually things that uh, I'm reading and I'm not learning much. And, and I think like this, like being tuned to, to a significantly higher degree than, than I guess is typical, is a significant part responsible for like a wider surface area. But then also, I guess, here's the thing, right, is that like, if I read what I consider to be interesting and the things that I learned, then it's kind of natural that other people are going to also learn that. And in contrast, if you're not very interested in learning per se, then well, you're going to be reading things that you don't learn, then, then you're going to share things where you don't really learn. And like people, people do find things interesting, like things that by consuming, they learn something interesting. So maybe learning, I guess, curiosity is a big part of this, but, but how do you cultivate this? I guess it's just always been there or something. I think it's very easy for me to be bored. Uh, it's, uh, and so that's, I've been thinking also about this, right? Returning back to, to your question about accessibility of writing, like why is like people often, often tell me that my writing is like unusually clear or something. And I think the reason is because I kind of just, well, first I spend a lot of time editing, but second, I, I edit until I myself find reading what I write interesting. And because it's very easy for me to be bored then I have to like really, like really struggle and like spend a lot of time making things that I write interesting for myself. And, and so as a result, they also end up being interesting to other people and end up being clear to other people. Oh yeah, so, so, but I think it's kind of like a general heuristic that and it's kind of like a way to, to think about like, I'm not sure I think about it consciously all that much, but it's definitely a big factor in, in like what I publish or, or write or share or tweet is like whether I would like subscribe to my blog. Like if I saw the blog post that I'm going to publish, like would I subscribe after reading the blog post? And like if the answer is no, I'm much more like, much less likely to publish uh, the thing because it's probably not very interesting, right? Yeah, 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 makes sense. What does Russia get right that the U.S. gets wrong? Maybe the answer is something like Russia is a more cultural country. In a way, I think, like, one thing that I've been pondering recently is, that's very relevant to this, is why did communism only succeed in Russia? And I think the reason for this is that Russia has this unique, uniquely idealistic culture in a way, uh, where, like, People do take ideas seriously, where they're the, the communist party, like there's many communist parties, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure communism like could ever win in America because America is both more optimistic, but, but, but also more realistic. It's a very, America is grounded in reality much more than Russia and Russia, uh, you know, it's a very tragic country and it's a very idealistic country and people take ideas seriously there and to convince 
to convince the the population of this large poor mostly agrarian country to support uh, the communist regime and not only the communist regime because china also had communism but it's remarkable to me how china as soon as mao zedong died like uh, the, like the very next chairman of Chinese uh, uh, of Chinese Communist Party, like basically abandoned everything. They were like, okay, like the, that guy's dead. Let let's go and do something reasonable. Let's keep building capitalism. Let's get rich. And like now now they have like like an extremely hyper capitalistic society. And this basically like started as soon as the first leader of the party died. And in Russia, they actually kept building socialism. Like, well, they, they were living in socialism and they kept building communism like very seriously for generations. Uh, like Lenin died and Stalin really did believe in communism and all the uh, high party functionaries really believed in communism. And Khrushchev after Stalin really believed in communism. And, and I think even Brezhnev probably. And, and so when I talked to my dad, for example, so he was born in 64 and I think by 70s, 80s, people kind of stopped believing in this. But up until, like, for decades, like, Soviet Union, like, was trying to build communism by year 1980. And, like, this this is, like, totally insane and, and like, impossible. And, and kind of, like, the, the, the whole idea, like, socialism, like, in a way that Soviet Union was building, it just, like, did not work and could not work. And, and like, the vision, the, the communist vision that they were building, like also probably could just could not really work. And yes, you know, like the entire country, like maybe not the entire country, but like the, the people who were running the country, like really did believe in this. And, and this is to me like really fascinating. I, I guess, is it right? Is it or like, is it something that Russia gets right and America gets wrong? I mean, Soviet Union was not something good that happened to the country. It was terrible in a myriad of ways. But, but, but I guess it's something that's really fascinating to me. Again, this idealism of the elites versus the realism of the elites. There's something very fascinating about this. That's, that's really fascinating. I'm also thinking about uh, here's uh, here's something fun as well. Like Russia is famous for mathematics, right? And, and for writers, right? Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, R Russian culture, especially 19th century culture, uh, like is really. I think Russian literature is, is like on a whole another level. And again, it's kind of. I think it's all from from the same root of this idealism of the elites, uh, where Europeans like they create great culture, but there is no. And I think they're like, it's either realistic or it's nihilistic. It's not like like this. I'm not sure that Western Europe or, or, or the U.S. could have ever produced Dostoevsky, for example. Or uh, like again, going back to math, I think again it's the same root. It's like math is is the thing where you totally retreat from the real world and you're just like in the world of ideas and imagination. And I think it all stems like it's all about this idealism of of the elite uh, and. It's something that seems to me to be very uniquely Russian, I guess, where it's this northern northern country where people live in these hard conditions and have to think like to to prepare for the winter and to think about like all the like how to survive and all the very difficult things. And at the same time, like it's it's very authoritarian, authoritarian, and, and the power is very centralized. And so there is a lot of really smart people who who don't really have much to do, and they produce really great art, and they think a lot about ideas, and they do great math. And yeah, that's that seems something to be uniquely Russian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is that that is fascinating. 
What's your favorite Dostoevsky novel? Uh, Brothers Karamazov. Brothers Karamazov. Okay. I just read Anna Karenina by Tolstoy uh, a couple of weeks ago. I finished it and I just started Demons, but I, I haven't I haven't read any other Dostoevsky, so this is the first one. Yeah. Uh, Demons, Demons is also great. I'm I'm personally less partial to, to Tolstoy than to Dostoevsky. Uh, I feel like Tolstoy is... I feel like Tolstoy doesn't accept reality as it is or something. He's kind of idealistic, but in, in a way that's almost not fully honest with himself or something. Like, if you read Tolstoy's Confessions, for example, like he wrote it, I think, two years after finishing Anna Karenina, and so he, he basically denounced all of his previous writings. And he was like, in Confessions, he, he wrote that, well, I wrote this War and Peace, and I wrote Anna Karenina, and now I'm like the greatest writer in the world. I wrote the best novels, and now I really don't know what to do with my life. And I realized that I was only writing all of the stuff in order for people to like me because I, I, I wanted to be a great writer or something, and it really doesn't matter in the end. And I feel like, I mean, he did have this realization, but, and it's true, but he did not magically change. He still like kept being Tolstoy, like he was like, 45, I think, when this happened to him. And so, yeah, I feel, I feel like he's, I don't know, he, 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 like, it's really painful and it's, like, it's terribly, terribly difficult to write something that's, like, really, really honest. And it seems that Dostoevsky succeeded at this. Maybe because he was, like, literally almost executed when he was, like, 25, right? And, and he was like, well, I have nothing else to lose. I might as well just be honest. And I feel like Tolstoy, even though he was at war, but like he he never quite reached the stage of where he was able to just stop to stop worrying about other writers uh, at, at Saint Petersburg balls right liking him, uh, like he he just always kept kept looking for that. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, that's a good analysis. Why do you think smart people are so easily seduced by utilitarianism? I don't think it's about smart people. I think it's a very particular kind of smart people. And again, it's kind of like our entire discussion is about idealism. I think utilitarianism is this particular sort of idealism. And, and in fact, right, the, the kind that Dostoevsky was arguing very passionately about, uh, was arguing very passionately against. Uh, but the, the reason utilitarianism is seductive to smart, you know, highly systematizing you know, lar largely depressed uh, uh, people is because it provides this very clear direction in life. Like, and especially if you're an atheist, then like there is no purpose in life. There is no meaning in life. It, like universe is just what it is. Uh, and we're kind of like, everything is kind of random. There is, there is, yeah, there is no meaning and utilitarianism. Like if you have this, I think very mathematical mind and you want everything to be clean and, and simple and beautiful and abstract and uh, there to be systems and, and like with, with small number of moving parts, uh, then utilitarianism and you're kind of in this situation when you, where you're lost in life and there is no meaning, everything is random and, and you want things to be simple and beautiful and abstract, then of course you're going to go to utilitarianism because there's one utility function it's very mathematical, very beautiful, you know, expected, uh, whatever, uh, pleasure minus suffering. And it doesn't matter that you can't calculate it. It doesn't matter that you don't know what the future holds. Uh, like all of these things kind of 
fade away in, in the face of the beauty of the single single function to, to optimize and, and it's it's a very meaningful function because also if you're suffering a lot and you're depressed and you're like, oh yeah, that's actually becoming happy and making other people happy as well is, is a great thing to pursue in life. And I think that this combination of like, you know, there is also something very scientific about utilitarianism, right? Because math is science. And so it's kind of like such a perfect replacement for whatever it is that people lose when they become atheists and that, um, that leads people to really cling to utilitarianism, I think. You called out that it's not uh, smart people necessarily. It's a certain type of smart people. You also have a post talking about the difference between high IQ and genius. What do you think separates those two? Well, high IQ is about the raw processing power, basically. And it's easy to have very high raw processing power and at the same time to like, I guess have the same perspective as, as everyone else. And genius is much more about having a different perspective and it's much more about synthesizing different perspectives and, and looking at looking at things in, in a way that people did not look at previously. I think I think a lot about Michael Nielsen's analogy where he distinguishes scientists who I guess work in existing fields and like create new fields. And I think indeed in order to create a new field, you, you have to like ask questions that people did not ask before. And this is much less, I think, about raw processing power and being able to solve particular problems and much more about like poking problems. So like figuring out problems that other people have not already thought about. And, and I guess this is what genius is about much more so. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you have one post that has puzzled me for a while. And I saw some people in the comments on Marginal Revolution puzzling over it a little bit too, which is your your advice for Tyler Cowen. And you have one of them, which says, recursive self-improvement requires a closed system. What does that mean? Well, my memory of what uh, Tyler might have said or might not have said, uh, uh, maybe, you know, it's, it's all a dream, uh, that as soon as your basically like it's about machine learning right and people think about super intelligence people think about fast takeoff and uh, us building uh, ai that is able to recursively self-improve and what i think this points to me is uh, that this is basically not really going to happen because ai is going to recursively self-improve but only like as soon as it doesn't touch the real world and then it's like the amount of data the amount of uh, like patterns in the world that it can learn about is very limited well maybe it will recursively self-improve math or something but like as soon as you want to touch the real world as long as you want to predict the real world and discover the loss of the real world you need the data from the real world as well uh, and so this is an open system and then you run into very very different kinds of constraints because collecting data from the real world is slow. It's orders of magnitude, orders of magnitude times slower than, uh, you know, just being in your head or like, yes, in, uh, in an AI's head and, and just thinking. Uh, and there, yeah, and there the, this uh, recursive self-improvement kind of basically like stops working in the way that people imagine it to work. It basically works the way like our civilization already works. And I guess humanity already works where like, humans are in a way recursively self-improving and, and we've been living in this recursively self-improving regime for what 10,000 years now and 
I guess things are kind of working and it's not just blowing up uh, with triple exponentials. It's very nice, neat, slow, single exponentials. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I found this kind of interesting. You had a, a 2019 post where it's called How Life Sciences Actually Work, Findings of a Year-Long Investigation. And you come out of it basically arguing that academia has a lot of problems, but it's less broken than it seems on the outside, which is pretty contrarian in like a lot of a lot of groups to say that academia is doing a lot of things well. But then you come back and in 2021, you're like, well, actually, no, I'm more pessimistic. So this is why I started uh, New Science, the nonprofit. Can you explain a little bit about what happened over those two years to make you change your mind? I think the biggest thing that happened is just like recalibration because, right, I think especially if you can go out like with sex people, then there is this picture of academia just like not working. And, and people often write about like the death of academia and like science, like almost like sliding back in time. And so... I think this, this is not very different from what what I thought when I first started to think about this. I was like, oh, everything is terrible, like everything is broken. And so after a year of actually looking into this and in 2019, I was like, wait, actually, like, yes, lots of things are broken, but like things are still kind of working. And indeed, so, like there's lots of problems, but there's also like things are not like just as absolutely horrible as people think. Uh, and I think like this update from things being like, me expecting things to be really horrible to then being like, oh wait, actually there are good parts, like caused me to be like, oh actually, like I guess to maybe over update it, at least to my, for my mood to change it, to, for me to be like, oh wait, actually things are not very bad. And so, but then, you know, after two more years, I was like, wait, things are actually like really bad. <laughs> and the fact that there are good parts and the fact that like it's possible to do things, uh, like does not mean that things are not really broken. And it's kind of like an analogy to SpaceX could be, right? Like rockets, like, like we were still able to launch rockets in the year 2000 and NASA was still operational. And, uh, and like hypothetically, they, in, in fact, like without SpaceX, they could have landed another person on the moon probably in, in a few decades. And so all of this does not contradict the fact that things were still like terrible in all kinds of ways. Uh, but if you came in with the expectation that like we can't even get in a rocket out in space, then I think uh, learning that we actually can would would make you uh, would make you pretty pessimistic on your plans of whatever alternative you're thinking about. Uh, but at the end of the day, SpaceX still makes sense, and, and like I still think it makes a ton of sense to like really radically like rethink how academia should work and and how like we want to go about doing science. It does seem that the technology of science, the I feel like the primacy of truth above, above everything else and like the, the integrity that used to like sustain science from the inside is really, really getting eroded where universities, well, I guess everyone knows, or I guess I, I, I'm best known by my debunking of this book by Matthew Walker, who, who is a professor at UC Berkeley and where, where this famous neuroscience professor wrote a pop science book and, and it's just like, it's basically pseudoscience. Like he just makes things up endlessly. He, he writes that like sleep will kill you in all kinds of ways, will double your odds of getting cancer. Just like sleep is the best thing of the, in the world. Lack of sleep is the worst thing in the world. And I looked into the science and looked at his citations and like the reality is like totally different from what he writes. It's like really not clear what the relationship between sleep and, and health and cancer and all of these things really is. 
and then I published this and like lots of the scientists read what I wrote and they were like, yeah, this makes sense. And then it turns out that like at some point he manipulated data, he literally cut out uh, part of the graph that like was going against his argument. And then like nothing happened to him. Like UC Berkeley actually apparently looked into this and they decided that it's all totally fine. And, and like he, he's been a good scientist and that basically making, making data up lying shamelessly to the public uh, and then like and then his pay and i looked at his papers and this is really funny because i actually sent a data request for one of the papers he published uh, in a journal where like you authors have to send the data upon request and then they never replied to me and then i wrote to the editor and then i think eventually they if i remember correctly they sent the date like two months later but then simultaneously publishing a correction to the paper that was like, oh, by the way, we discovered a bunch of mistakes and they don't change any of our major conclusions. And it's like, after, and I was like, come on, this is like, this is the, this, the one paper that I requested the data from, like this happened. Uh, and yeah, and the fact that UC Berkeley does nothing, the fact that I think there's many other scientists who were extremely credibly accused of not just lying to the public, but of actual scientific fraud and, universities largely just don't really seem to care. Um, this really worries me. It seems that something really needs to be done about this. I am not sure if like entirely new academia needs to be built or if it's possible to reform academia or what the right way to go about doing this is exactly, but well. What, what would you recommend that the general public do to sort of like fight back against this? So notably, like you said, you spent over 130 hours researching to write that. Matthew Walker essay. So, you know, the average person who's just like shopping for a pop science book and wants to read about sleep isn't going to like have that much time. Do you have any like heuristics or like recommended ways that the average person can sort of get a gut check? And maybe another way to phrase this question is actually going back for yourself. Like, how did you first uh, recognize that maybe there was something wrong here? I think that's the first part. I think for, for, for an average person, the best thing to do is if you're certain to read a, a pop science book, check the first you know, check, check one citation at random and just see whether what the abstract of the paper says corresponds to what the, the, the book you are reading says. And if they do not match, it's probably not a good sign. And uh, if you did this check with why we sleep, then you, you, you would very quickly discover that something is not quite right. Uh, in terms of how I realized that something is not right, well, I guess I did not do this. I, I just started reading and in the first paragraph, like there was something that I thought sounded very suspicious. There was a claim, if I remember correctly, about like sleep, lack of sleep doubling the, the odds of getting cancer. And I was like, first, this sounds really wild uh, and just doesn't, doesn't pass my vibe check, I guess. And then I tried to imagine, okay, so how would you design a study that would result in in such a discovery and I was like, well, there is no way in hell anyone could, could have run such, such a study. Like you would need the like really giant RCT that makes people, some people sleep less, some people sleep more and then track them over 10 or 20 years or something. And like, obviously nobody ever done anything like this. And so, which means that like at best, like this claim in the very suspected group of the book is based on, on some probably really low quality relational data where there are all kinds of like 
a million different factors uh, uh, influence each other. And then uh, like he found one correlation and then made a claim that oh, like this causes this one is just this giant network of interrelationships. And then I looked into the data and then there's no, not even that, uh, like there's just nothing. Like there is some like occasional like sleep and cancer correlations. There is nothing really systematic. Uh, and, and so, I guess this is how this is how I realized that something is not quite right. Yeah, and then like in the entire first chapter, like I, I just kept reading things that was like, okay, like like there is no way he could have gotten this evidence. Like this is obviously wrong. Like something is not right here. And then like whenever wherever I look, I would look at something like this, like things just didn't check out. Do you know anything about how these like do these books go through checks before they get published? Or like, I guess in your view how is it that books like this can get published and get so popular without like a bunch of people noticing? I think people do notice. They just don't care. A few neuroscientists actually wrote to me, like professors and grad students and postdocs after I published my piece and they were like, oh yeah, like we knew that like, like the science is not very good. The book is an embarrassment to the field, but he's like, he's the single most prominent researcher in the field and he runs a large Sleep Center, and he's uh, really well published. He uh, he has a lot of power and control, and also he brings a lot of money to the sleep in, uh, to, to the sleep research field. And so, like the people who could notice this, are in a position where they're either dependent on Walker himself, or they are afraid of repercussions, or it, it just you know. I, I was at the time basically nobody, and like I was unemployed uh, for. What for more than a year by that point, and I didn't really have much to do, and I didn't have much to lose, and so I was like, well, I, I feel like uh, there is some something really wrong happening in the world, and I might as well, uh, as a an unemployed uh, twenty, how old was I, twenty two year old, uh, just do something about this, and um, and other people. You know, they're maybe a professor, and they can't afford to first spend a month full time writing this and then deal with the fallout of maybe, you know, their department getting less funding next year or, or them personally getting a negative review from reviewer two uh, and no longer getting published very well or, you know, all kinds of things like this. Or just uh, their colleagues, you know, like I think that people, my friends often tell me to be, uh, <laughs> I guess, to be more, more friendly on Twitter and like to, <laughs> to, to not call out bullshit. And, you know, the, I care about my friends and I, I, I do try my best and often they, they make me, uh, uh, not call out BS that they see. And then again, if you're in academia and, and it's like, like this influence is like 10 times stronger, a hundred times stronger. And so I guess I'm personally not very surprised that nothing happens. It seems that, uh, this just, how things are, I guess. Like people in positions to notice that something is not quite right uh, usually are also in positions where they kind of don't want to do it. Yeah. Related question. If you didn't need to sleep yourself and you had a marginal seven hours, let's say per day over everybody else in the world, where would you spend that time? I have no clue. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I'm a big believer in... in doing rather than talking and you know whatever i might say whether i would spend more time building things or, or, or coding or reading or writing or learning i have no clue maybe maybe, maybe yes maybe maybe i would spend seven hours a day on youtube 
uh, I think these hypotheticals are are not something that we should take as seriously as, as we often want them to be. We all have goals, uh, resolutions, uh, uh, decisions, and then, uh, you know, more often than not, uh, gyms get much less full in February than they were in January. And these extra seven hours uh, without sleep, you know, who knows what would happen. Yeah, I saw a tweet one time. Uh, that was basically like, you know, everyone who's aspiring, who is an aspiring novelist, but thought they just didn't have the time learned during COVID that, that this is not true. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, oh, if I just had the time and it's like, okay, here you go. Uh, and, uh, not so many people used it. Um, I spent a lot of time playing Counter-Strike during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, this is maybe my favorite post of yours, but I... I thought it was really interesting because it's something that I like try to do more often, but I think is really hard. You go back and you evaluate some of your previously held beliefs. So you're like pretty vocal publicly about obviously, um, you know, sleep not being as important as people say, uh, also on meditation, you were like thought that it was not near as useful as people had claimed. And then you wrote a post later that came out and was like, well, actually, you know, you weren't like a full, you know, sleep maxer, but you said sleeping is more important than uh, I previously believed. And then sort of the same thing on meditation. I'm curious, like, how did you, uh, how, how did you come about this? I feel like for me, if I hold a strong belief and I say it publicly, it like can become very hard to change my mind. How did you like go about reevaluating these? I guess I just don't care. <laughs> like, I don't know if I, if I, if I like, or rather, I think the answer is probably the same here as why am I working on improving how science works? Why do I, uh, why did I write this piece about why we sleep? Why, why, why do I write uh, these quote tweets on Twitter where, where I see uh, BS? It's, well, I guess it sounds, yeah, I know. I feel, I feel like I care about things being true or not. Just, like a lot, like just and like unhealthily much. Uh, where like, right? Why we sleep? Like why we sleep made me really angry. Like 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 it made me really emotionally angry. Like when, when I was like, wait, this is not right. Like it, it just like evoked this emotional response in me. And, and so when I realized that you know I hold a belief and the, the, it is not actually I hold a belief and it is not actually right. Like. I can become angry about this, and I, I was like, no, I, I want to be correct. I want, you know, truth is important, and 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 I guess this just matters more than uh, looking stupid in public. Also, this post, you know, uh, I think people enjoyed reading it, and so I think it helps other people as well. How about specifically on meditation? Because that's something that like I myself have never been able to get really into, and I feel like it's something where if you think it's not useful and you never go and do it like you know you don't just magically get sucked into it one day you have to actually like wake up and believe that it might work and then go and practice it how did you go about changing your mind on that one oh i mean like just a couple of people who i trusted and who held similar beliefs before told me that told me that actually meditation is good and i was like okay i'm going to try and then i tried and I was like, wait, this is actually like, seems kind of useful because I think 
in the very, like, I spent an hour just sitting on a yoga mat thinking, I was like, wait, shit, I, I haven't like really thought just by myself in a very long time. And I actually figured a bunch of things out uh, and I resolved some problems. Uh, and then what happened was I just like decided to spend 100 days doing one hour of meditation a day, like no matter what. And well, if I just made this decision, I don't know how it would would have gone, but I also told about this to, to this friend very quickly and I was like, okay, like this, this is great and going to do 100 days of this. And, and I put it on a post-it note on my mirror in the bathroom and I was like, okay, here's 100 days. Here's like when, when I started, where, here's where it ends. Uh, here's where it ends. Uh, and then, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's how I got into this. And actually, funnily enough, as soon as 100 days ended, like I, I, I didn't really regain the ability to, like I stopped doing this one hour a day religiously, even though it was still very useful and still very helpful. But I think it was this, like this beauty of uh, and simplicity of, of this goal of 100 days and this being, you know, my, my biggest personal goal, uh, and me telling people that I would do this all, all contributed, uh, and without this, I probably wouldn't wouldn't be able to sustain it. Yeah, so enough people saying like, no, trust me, you got, you got to try it. Enough people who I really trusted and who like I saw, like what, what was important here was that like I knew that these people like believed the same things about meditation that I believed in the past. And I was like, okay, they were where I am right now in the past and I think they're really smart and they changed their mind. There's probably a good chance that I'm just like, I'm just not seeing something that they're seeing and, and, and I might as well try do you think that uh, scientists or researchers benefit from a belief in God? What do we mean by benefit here? Do you think it makes them a better scientist or researcher? Yes. My impression is that atheism, like, again, like, it seems that there is this very deep need, need in people to believe in something beyond themselves. And if they lose it, it's difficult for them to like stay true to themselves and stay true to the world and to retain in this idealism, like because everything becomes random and science being the pursuit of truth and the loss of nature and reality. I think if you believe that ultimately everything is random and everything is without purpose, then I think you're not going to be do science as well as you would if you saw, uh, if, if you thought that actually there is meaning and there is something beyond uh, beyond just the papers that we publish, just beyond like these arbitrary rules or arbitrary phenomena that we discover, that there is something beyond that. Yeah, and, and I don't know if it's true, but my suspicion that, yeah, there there is just something about this, like, it's very difficult for people to live without the belief in something, something beyond themselves. And can it really break them? And well, a lot of them end up with utilitarianism or with communism or with all, all of these kinds of replacements. Yeah, well, or you just start making up data and try to get as famous as you can. Like when people, like, when people do take God really seriously and they do take the absolute moral rules seriously, like, they do not break them, or they do their best not to break them. And when they don't have this high, highest authority, when every, everything, everything is random and arbitrary, then, 
Yeah. So you wrote a post in 2019 called why you should start a blog and you're convincing people like, Hey, here's, I started a blog. Here's all the benefits that I got from it. Sort of like now blogs are much more saturated. You have Substack. Um, there's many, many more than there were in 2019. It seems like just the number of blogs on an absolute basis is like much, much greater. And so, you know, perhaps the likelihood of being found or, um, you know, getting read, uh, goes down a little bit, but I'm, my question to you is like, do you think that in the world of today, you, you give that, you would give that advice as strongly as you would have back in uh, 2019? Yep. I'm not sure I know many great blogs, honestly. Like, yeah, there, there are many blogs, but there's always been many blogs. I mean, there used to be a life journal and like everyone had a life journal uh, or people used to write on their Facebook walls a lot. And I think that before there was what what was it called like blogger platform, if I remember correctly, I think. Yeah. I think there have always been lots of blogs. There's always been few really great ones. I don't think this really changed. I think the returns to creating a really great blogger as high, if not higher than, than they used to be honest. Yeah. Got it, got it, got it. Question on video games. Do you think that they are net good or net bad for society? I have no clue. No clue. Do you think you can learn from video games for some people? It definitely can be net bad for some people. It can definitely be not good for other people. For me, I don't know what the answer is to this question, honestly. I spent many years, I guess you're alluding to the fact that I spent many years being really addicted to video games, being really depressed and, and suicidal. And is it because of video games or was it because of the circumstances of my life and video games were just a thing that was available? Maybe without video games, I would have been doing hard drugs or something. It said, uh, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe I would become, you know, an alcoholic if I didn't have video games. And so, thinking in counterfactuals again, this is this is exactly why you know utilitarianism I think is much more difficult than than people think. It's very easy to it's very easy for me to just say that oh no, definitely video games are bad. The, like everyone wastes so much time. I, I spent years addicted to them. You know. I spent COVID playing Counter-Strike instead of doing anything useful. Uh, but then, who knows? Maybe the only reason I'm not dead from from like drinking too much, way too much alcohol, like, or or, or the only reason I'm not doing heroin right now is because I had video games that helped me to cope with whatever was surrounding me at the time. So honestly, I have very little idea of whether video games are not good or not bad. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, another post that actually. I like to reference a lot is the one on the, that you have called the importance of increasing morale. What's the most common thing you do to increase your own morale? You give a list on the blog of like, you know, a hundred things basically that you could do, but I'm curious if there's like any one when you wake up every day that you, uh, that you go to. Going outside. Going outside. Yeah. I think going outside is like the, the easiest thing. Uh, and like the, the thing that like pretty much never fails. I think, I mean, it, going outside. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to add other one. There's like a few more, but like just going outside always works very easy to do. So, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I've, I've lived in situations where I have like a gym in my house or like in, a, in, in an apartment building. Right. Or, or I can go to a gym that's like, you know, f five to 10 minute walk away. And on the surface, it seems nicer to have the gym in your building. And I typically go in the mornings, but I, I have found that I actually like a lot better the, the walk in the morning, like just getting outside the first thing in the morning is, is incredibly helpful. So I, I resonate with that quite a bit. I think people really appreciate this one, actually, that 
like the impact of DoorDash or uh, like any kind of delivery or any kind of remote work or internet itself or even us doing, doing this interview. Like this interview would have been even more fun if it was in person. We're not doing it in person because we can't do it over video. And I'm not going outside, you're not going outside. We're both more depressed than we could have been otherwise. And <laughs> everyone else who could have gone outside and attended an event where uh, with this interview is not going outside, they, 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 they will watch this in their home instead and they will probably order delivery to their home instead of going outside and going to a grocery store or, or yeah, I think this is like, like, it's amazing to me how many of our technological innovations are literally just making us less likely to do the one thing that's most likely to make us less less depressed. Even smoke, even the vaping, even vaping, like yeah, you're gonna have to go outside, outside and smoke vape. a cigarette. Yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah, that, that's actually a really good point. It's like they've, it's, it's. <laughs> It's just like maximum laziness. You could just do it on your couch and the, the house doesn't smell. Yep. Yeah. Uh, what have you learned from David Goggins? Honestly, the biggest thing I learned is that if you are doing something really physical and it doesn't require much brain power, then it's very easy to use the, this extra brain power that you have to you know, make yourself do the, whatever physical thing you physical labor you're doing better. Like if you're running really long distance, then you don't have to think about anything really. And you can talk to yourself and you can motivate yourself and you can imagine all kinds of things. And that this doesn't really apply to mental work where you want to be using 100% of your brain power doing uh, uh, already. And you can't, you don't have this 80% spare parts where like 80% of your brain spare that you can use to motivate yourself. So that's, honestly, that's, that's maybe the biggest one. I, I, I spent, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of David Goggins. I, I read his book like uh, way, way too many times. Uh, I think I read it three times over, like just, I first read it and then I was like, wait, this is too good. And I read it again immediately and then immediately again. This never happened to me. And so, you know, the storytelling is incredible. Like the, like the, the tricks, the, and like the strategies that he offers are incredible. You know this, uh, yeah. He, his personal, his personal rise and fall and rise and fall. These, these are all incredible. But in retrospect, I think they they, they fit his lifestyle and, and the things that he does uh, much better than uh, the life of most of us probably. And the lessons, unfortunately, generalize quite a bit less and yeah one, one, one thing that's I think relevant I'm not sure who, who, I, who I heard this from maybe it was just a tweet but it was something along the lines of take advice from people who you want to be or like take advice from people uh, who are in the position in life where you want to get to or, or something and, you know, I think at some point I realized, wait, like David Goggins, like, is an amazing person, but I am not personally really interested in like breaking world records for, you know, running or doing pull-ups or I don't think I'm going to be a motivational speaker or something like this. And so 
like what, whatever the lessons and strategies that he used to get where he's at, however amazing all of this is, is probably less useful to me than 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 I, I, I would have hoped. Yeah, I guess if you're just like really struggling over VS code, the stop being a bitch is not as good of advice as it is if you're <laughs> you know yeah. running it running an ultra marathon a little more useful. Yeah, yeah. Or singing a song, right? Like that's you know it's such a like it's such an amazing strategy where I think like right they were carrying the boats and like everyone was like almost dying from from tiredness and lack of sleep and like just total muscle soreness. And then David was like, wait, why don't we like sing a song from uh, a war movie? I, I don't remember. That's like really motivational, like really uplifting. And they started singing and they were like, okay, we're going to make it. And, and like they made it and it's all amazing. Except like, yeah, you can't really do it when, when, when you're struggling debugging VS code because like it actually takes brain power that you're already using. You're going to be worse. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, very, very, very sad, very unfortunate. I, I really, I really, really admire David Goggins. And well, if I decide to 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 do a pull up world record at some point, I'm I'm going to go back and read all of his stuff with with double the passion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, that, that brings up a good point too, because you you do have a post on on advice. The post basically says that giving advice is really difficult because all people are different. And you just sort of alluded to this, where it's like David Goggins is maybe like achieving a different goal than you might be at at a certain point in time. I'm curious, like what single piece of advice has been most influential on you and, and who did it come from? I'm not sure I can identify one. I mean, like Tyler Cowen, Sam Altman, Patrick Collison, Ned Friedman have been huge influences on me. But whether it's because of following advice or thinking about advice and deciding not to follow it and instead do something totally different, I, uh, I, uh, I'm not sure which one, which one is, is, is the bigger influence, honestly. Yeah, totally fair. Uh, and, and I think, yeah, the thing about advice is, again, it's like, at the end of the day, giving advice is not the same as living, it's not the same thing as living advice. And giving advice without living in, in a way is almost like, you know, in economics, there's this concept of revealed preference, yeah. uh, right? Where you like people say things and then people do things and often the things they say and do are very different. Then giving advice is this type of uh, saying things and not doing things. And then the day, like the way you do things, how you do them, what you do them matters much more as advice than just giving advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about your post where you have like your favorite media. So you've got movies, TV shows, books, podcasts. And I noted that you saw or you list uh, true detective season two on there. And I remember when true detective season two came out, the critical reception was basically like, this was the greatest TV show of all time. Season one was like revolutionary and season two is, you know, it bombed. Like people did not generally give it good reviews. So I I thought this is a little bit contrarian that you liked it. So I'm curious, what is it about season two of True Detective that put it up on your um, list of favorites? I feel like it's again like it, it's almost like season one is Tolstoy, season two is Dostoevsky for me. <laughs> okay, okay, like, this is good. Season, yeah. two is, uh, season two is honest in a way that season one is not. Season one is you know this. It's almost like 
you know, I feel like it's something about maybe the the creator of the show like needed to prove himself, and he exaggerated everything. He made this main character, right, Matthew McConaughey, like this, you know, nihilistic to the like, you know, this just absurd caricature. I think, and 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 in general, it's almost like, you know, proving to the people that you can create this amazing TV show. I feel like. Uh, and to with his caricatures of, of thoughts and ideas and characters, and season two for me, yeah, it just felt much more honest than season one. Got it. Got it. What was honest about it? Have you seen it recently enough to like recall specifics? Yeah, it's yeah, it's more difficult for me to to talk about season one because I only watched it once, uh, and then I was like, well, this this wasn't all that good and, and then season two was just in, incredible let me try to think i guess it's something about complexity uh, like again it's you know again we i feel like we're talking about many different things but in a way we're we're, we're still talk, talking about the same thing this like simplicity and beauty versus complexity and ugliness in a way and the real world is you know, we really want it to be beautiful and simple, and unfortunately, it's you know very complicated and ugly and difficult in all kinds of ways. And season two, I think, just shows this much more. Like things are things are complicated. Everything up until like the end of the show, right? Every character, there is something something good about them in a way, something bad about them. They they have reasons for doing things. Sometimes they do the things without reasons. Sometimes it's uh, to you know because they want to be loved, because they want to be rich, because they want to be powerful, because they are trying to escape something. And and this complexity again, I, know, I think there is this beauty in complexity and the ugliness and lack of clear cut goodness and badness of characters and yeah it, it just seemed that like season two was just very unique to me as a tv show for for being able to show all of this yeah and, and again too i think it's honest to be honest about like the difficulties of everything uh, and the complexities of everything and like if i remember correctly up until the last episode maybe or or, or last two episodes like we don't even know if if geez i don't remember any of the names of characters but there is this mafiosi uh uh like uh, leader who presumably like who who gave the corrupt cop like the wrong person uh, as the person who attacked uh the cop's wife and like i think until then you don't know and i think you're still like you, you don't really know like is this, is this true? Like, was he himself confused? Like, was it deliberate? Like, why did he do it? Was it like, is he a bad person? Is he a good person? Like, was he like, we don't know. Like, and I think that's, that's kind of how the world works. That's like, you just don't really know. And it's like difficult and complicated. And yeah, and, and maybe that's precisely why, you know, like critics don't like it. You know, for, as a critic, you, you want to be able to pronounce a clear judgment or something, because if you don't, you know, people won't read you and they won't enjoy your, your reviews. And then, you know, you present them with a really difficult work that you can't really form a really cl clean judgment and say, oh, things are uh, in a particular, like say things that are very, you know, simple. Uh, and so maybe it's 
not not unexpected that uh, <laughs> that critics don't like this this kind of this kind of art very much. One thing I wanted to ask you about is a question on one of your blog posts and says that there's alpha and low status. Why do you think that is? I think it's something about, you know, status being a reward, like, you know, high status professions, like banking, consulting, software engineering. Well, I guess in, in some circles, it's high status, in other circles, it's, it's low status. But it's like high status in a way is a reward for, you know, not deviating from the path and doing what is expected and uh, just continuing to do what, whatever you were doing and you know starting to make a lot of money and starting to be respected rise, ri- rising up the ranks and as you rise up the ranks you you gain status and i think what usually happens if you do this too religiously is you know you just keep doing the same thing and and you know the things that we start doing when we we're 18 or 20, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't have any clue what I was doing when I was 18 or, or 20, or uh, honestly, I don't know if I have any clue what I'm doing today still, but I definitely have like more clue than, than I had when I was 18. And so if you, if you keep rising in status, you know, uh, continuously as you progress through life, I think there is a very good chance that like you're basically rising up in status in, in the wrong direction way. And so, and it's very difficult to stop doing this. It's very difficult to just be unemployed and you know think about life for a year. Uh, it, it, it's very depressing and it's you know, terrifying in a way. And I think very few people do this, but it's kind of a way to figure out the right, like the right direction, I think, to, to go in. And, and you know, and, and and it's a very low status thing to do. All of your friends will probably think that you know you, you're you're a loser now. You're unemployed. You know, you you spent three months playing video games and not doing anything, and you're really depressed. And then you're running out of your savings, and then like it's it's now difficult to get a job because you you have a year gap in your resume, and it, and it's just like really really difficult to do. But yeah, if so, if someone told you they were going to go on sabbatical. What would, how would you recommend they're going to do your sabbatical? What what would be your recommendation for that period of time? I would recommend solo travel. Uh, not sure what the right amount is, but I think that's uh, the reason for this is like if you want to get unstuck from your existing patterns and expectations and all of that stuff, you know, you, you kind of you want to get out of the physical space where you are, and ideally you want to spend time by yourself. And, and think about things and, and and figure things out for yourself and solo travel is you know it's the thing that combines everything like you don't have to do it i think but uh, yeah it's kind of like going outside just go go outside but like somewhere very far and, and yeah like probably don't spend all of your time by yourself because you know if you spend a year being by yourself uh, and don't talk to people. You, you, you know, it's you. You might kill yourself. It's, it, but you know, some amount. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's What's next for the Guzzi blog? Do you plan to continue posting? Do you have any intentions to stop? We'll see. Let's let let uh, let's make this a mystery. Okay. Well, Alexi, that's a, a great one to end on. Thank you so so much for your time today. It was great talking with you. Thanks for taking the time, Phil. Well.